From the heart of the academy to the heart of the church. Today I am speaking with Mother Sophia from Mount St. Mary's Abbey about her journey from Harvard to the monastery. Welcome to the Harvard Catholic, conversations with interesting people and dedicated disciples of Christ from the greater Harvard community, hosted by me, undergraduate chaplain and almost famous jazz drummer, Father Patrick Fiorillo. Be sure to follow us or subscribe to stay on top of all the latest episodes. Here we go. Hey everyone, we are back from our little summer hiatus. Hopefully you had a chance to listen to the two episodes we released in the spring, one with a recent graduate, Luke, in which we discussed the intersection of spirituality and jazz performance, and the other with TJ, also a recent grad, in which he spoke about his approach to service to the poor using the spirituality of St. John of the Cross. Fun fact, these last two interviewees, Luke and TJ, are actually close friends, and despite their widely different backgrounds, they hold a lot of deeper things in common. So if you go back and listen closely, you might pick up on that. Anyway, to kick off this next academic year, I'm taking the podcast on the road, and right now I am at Mount St. Mary's Abbey in Wrentham, Massachusetts. It's about an hour southwest of Boston, just 10 minutes from where I grew up. This is a monastery of Trappistine nuns, and the abbess, Mother Sophia, is a Harvard graduate from the class of 2005. And here she is, Mother Sophia. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Father Patrick. Well, thank you for allowing me to visit and be with you here. Uh, you know I've been coming here to your chapel on and off to pray ever since I entered seminary, which was 13 years ago. Uh, and so this does feel like a spiritual home for me. You've all been so supportive with your prayers. Well, we're so. really happy to have a local vocation to keep keep before our eyes. Yeah, thank you. I, I remember fondly uh, the time where I, I did that uh, massive Thanksgiving right after my ordination. I was on that, uh, as we call, victory lap of a newly ordained priest doing celebratory masses that first week. And so I think I did one here about four days after that ordination. And you graciously had me uh, inside your chapter room to get to know you all a little bit. Yes. So. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing that. It's so. great to get to yeah, it's so great to be here. And I never would have imagined 13 years ago or even six years ago that our paths would cross and I would get to know you more personally through this Harvard connection. So you've been abbess since 2019. Uh, have you done any sort of media interviews since then? Or is this your first? <laughs> I think I have used my prerogative as the abbess to delegate that pleasure to others up until this moment. <laughs> oh, I'm honored to be your first here. Now you will be your break to fame, which I'm sure is why you entered the monastery. All <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Well, let's start at the beginning. Where's home and what led you to attend Harvard for college? Well, I was born in the southeast of England and grew up in the southwest of Wales. Um, so, um, that is quite a remote location, very much in the country, and with its own unique culture. When it came time to be looking towards university higher education, uh, basically, I was looking for something a little different, an adventure, a new, a new experience, a new place. 
uh, looking around the opportunities in the UK, I wasn't finding what I was looking for. Uh, chiefly because in the UK, you may know that um, the education system is set up that you decide pretty much before you even apply what will be your field of study. And right. you study that field for three years, uh, which which is rather narrowing, really. And so for myself, I just felt like I had infinite interests and passions and wanted to be educated in a, in a broader way or at least to have that opportunity. So I I don't quite know why, but I started to look at colleges in the United States and, and discovered there the principle of um, liberal arts mm. where by design you don't specialize as early so that you can receive a broader education in, in many different fields. And so that seemed like it was right up my street. And um, again, looking at different uh, schools, I came upon Harvard and that was the one that caught my attention and my interest uh, just because of the accessibility to international students. I mm -hmm. mean, obviously it's prestige and, and the quality of the education, but that I had to focus. I couldn't scatter my energies in too many, mm -hmm. to too many different schools. So I came to visit... Um, for the what they call the pre-frosh weekend yep. and that was my first time on a plane my first time abroad um and i fell in love with it and i knew that this was the place for me the place where i could grow and learn and wow. it was meant to be yeah i think so <laughs> what yes. did you end up studying i studied linguistics at harvard nice yes that hadn't been my original intention i went thinking that i would be specializing in sciences but um, some of those things shake out in the first year. You realize what you're really, you're really interested in and what you used to be interested in as long as it wasn't too hard. Nice. <laughs> and, and so, right, um, sciences were things, was something that would interest me but wasn't worth the sacrifice, I guess, whereas uh, linguistics was a whole new field, very mm. fascinating. Human science, really, yep. um, that enabled me to uh, learn more about the human being, I think that was that was what drew me. Great! In four years, you graduated in two thousand five, right? That's correct. Yes. Well, you're one of six sisters right now who uh, who are featured on our Harvard Catholic Center vocations poster. So it's good to have you among uh, the the few others that have, that have graduated uh, since your time. Great. Well, uh, was there anything in particular you were involved with at St. Paul's or the Catholic Center, or um, particular memories from there? Well, yes. Um, I visited St. Paul's Church um, as soon as I was able. And I, w I was very struck first by the beauty of the church itself, yeah. the upper church, and then attending the student mass in the lower church. I was just bowled over by that experience because having grown up in South Wales, where it's really a small Catholic population, less than 3%, I had never been in a situation in which there were so many people my age practicing and celebrating their faith and that was just beautiful to me and very exciting to be part of that community great yeah that's certainly the case for for many people so you were obviously already catholic and intentionally seeking that community and yeah sounds like you found it i so did it's yes. good yes. well i'll ask you later about your uh vocational discernment but i'm just curious did you have any contact with uh, religious sisters during that time well, my first contact with religious would have been growing up, where we okay. had Ursuline sisters in the parish. Okay. Um, I Teaching? 
Yes, they were they were our catechists, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, we also had a monastery of our order actually off the coast of Pembrokeshire, mm-hmm. uh, called the Abbey, and we would go there in the summers. Although my idea of of what that meant, what monastic life meant, what a monk was, was pretty minimal at that time. Um, having come to the United States, I didn't have exposure to sisters at that time, although I would as soon as I started to move into theology studies. Mm-hmm. I, w- I would meet more religious at that point. And about that, so you, after Harvard graduation, you studied theology? I did, yes. Um, my, I just found my interests moving more and more in that direction. Um wanting to know more about, about my faith, about God. And I was, I, it was really a vocational discernment that mm. had an intellectual component to it at that point. Yep. And so, yes, I knew by my junior year that I would be moving in that direction. And so I looked at, at different schools and, and found one just around the corner, which, which seemed perfect for me, which was uh, Western Jesuit School of Theology, which yep. is now uh, a part of Boston College. Mm-hmm. And what was your particular interest in theology? Well, I took a, a Master of Theological Studies, which is a general degree with different, it covers the main areas of theology. But I think my, my specialties were church history and scripture. Mm-hmm. That was where I felt most drawn. Nice. Seems very applicable to the religious life. So then you entered here, the monastery. Uh, and how long was that until final vows? How long between entry and final yeah. vows? It was for me. It was six and a half years. Okay. Yes. And then you were elected abbess here in 2019, which I was honored to attend. Now that must have been a surprise, uh, considering you were probably the youngest abbess in the world at the time. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be willing to bet. <laughs> well, at this point in time, there are there are a small handful mm-hmm. of of in the in our order who yep. are in the 40s. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, I was the youngest, yep. yes. But the election process was, I'm sure, a surprise. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, the elections are predictable in the sense that you have to have one when the abbess retires. Right. Um, and so we knew six months in advance that we would be having the election. We knew also that the current abbess wouldn't be eligible to continue. So... Um, Living in community, you look around and you see who could mm-hmm. who could take on this this charge. And um, I, I had an inkling that this might be in my future. Everybody's kind of subtly looking over to you, like, <laughs> pointing. Not to exactly. You. <laughs> no, no. I mean, this is this is nothing like the presidential election. There's yeah, yeah. no explicit anything. No but, campaigning. Right. Definitely yeah. not. Definitely <laughs> not. But I mean, you just look at who's here and and what they can do and not do and what. You know, and you have to wait, obviously, for the for the work of the Holy Spirit through the community on the day of voting. But it was definitely a possibility in mind mm-hmm. that I had to carry in prayer before up before the election. Mm-hmm. Well, diving a little more into religious life as the undergraduate chaplain, I can see very clearly that one of the major benefits of a Harvard education is all of those unique connections that students are given across the globe. Uh, for research, travel, internships, and and so forth. And I'm sure you yourself had no shortage of such opportunities. Why give all that up for the cloistered life? Why not do something more 
quote unquote useful, where you could have a visible effect on the lives of others? That's a very interesting question. And just just being in the Harvard environment and in the academic environment generally, uh, it's almost like being on a train and the train is leading toward higher and better things mm -hmm. and, and more success and more glory and more possibilities. And you almost feel obliged to keep on that train, you know, as if you wouldn't be living up to your education or something. But for me, it was never a matter of seeking to achieve something. It, it was a matter of seeking the meaning of my life mm. and um, finding out what it was that God had in mind for me. Um, I mean, my search for God has been lifelong. And, and um, of course, it, it takes years to, to learn um, to listen to God and to, uh, to know yourself. But uh, over time, you just begin to realize that the most important thing is, is staying close to God and acting that out hmm. in, in your choices, in, in your life, and giving your whole life. I mean, that was, that's what it came down to for me, giving my whole life to God. Yeah. Um, that, that, was, that was a particular moment of decision for me when I realized that what I really wanted was to belong to God, and not only in my heart, but explicitly and publicly hmm. and uh, in terms of the contemplative life as opposed to for example any other form of life with more impact explicitly on the world I think um, again it was a matter of the heart a matter of faith a matter of feeling called that God can do what, with my life whatever he wishes hmm. and the impact of that is in his hands but this is where I'm meant to be this is what I'm meant to be doing. It's beautiful. Well, I entitled this podcast, as you heard in the beginning, from the heart of the academy to the heart of the church. That really is that religious vocation, right? Being the heartbeat, you know, the, the blood, giving that lifeblood that pumps through the church. Uh, invisible mission, but essential, nevertheless, right? People often ask me, what are the greatest challenges to the life of faith for a Harvard student? And it's not militant secularism, as like many might assume. I think it's just how busy they are and that constant pressure to excel in so many things, as you just alluded to. And so it can be hard to get extended periods of quality time where those deeper questions about life and faith can be elicited. So how did you manage to cut through that endless barrage of opportunities to, to hear this calling and and I presume to cultivate a, a sense of solitude and quiet in your own heart to be able to hear those whispering words of the Lord. Well, I think I was blessed to have received a formation in solitude growing up, not explicitly, I mean, but mm -hmm. um, just growing up where I did in the circumstances in which I did. Uh, solitude and silence became very important to me early on, just having space to be quiet, having space to listen, to consider, to ponder, and to pray. And so, going to college, that just continued for me. It was very clear that that was a need. Um, and however excited I might be about this club and that club and the other class, and mm. if I overburdened myself, I could just feel I wasn't living as I should. I, I wasn't allowing myself to um, receive the nourishment that I needed spiritually. 
That's uh, quite a grace. I always tell students playfully that I'm the uh, youngest person generation-wise to have grown up completely through high school without social media and smartphones um, because I graduated high school 2005. Uh, and then that's right after that is when Facebook and, and all that started. But you graduated college then, so that makes you uh, the youngest person generation-wise to go through college without all of those uh, media distractions as well. That seems like quite a uh, gift as well and something unique that you have to share. Have you ever thought about that? Yes. In fact, um, the the guy who invented Facebook was in my class. Oh, <laughs> look at that. So we did have it mm -hmm. in its very oh. early stages. <laughs> That's right. In its very yeah. early stages. Yep. But it, it wasn't what it then would become. Right. Um, right. I never had a cell phone. Um, the iPhone came out the year after I entered. Wow. Um, so, right, I, I agree. I think that I there was a benefit to having not had so much pressure from media. Um, but then now we have it. Uh, even in the monastery, as yeah. life goes on, as yep. you have a business, as you need to communicate with the world, yep. technology is inevitable. And so the question is not so much to use it or not to use it, but how to use it. Mm -hmm. and, and what are the human values and the spiritual values that will govern that use? Mm. That must take quite a bit of discernment. So it's very easy to get carried away with it, as you know. Yes, uh, so, yes. Yeah. I mean, because it's almost like a wish fulfillment illusion there you know you, you just keep on going looking for something that will satisfy you right yep uh, the endless scrolling as, right as yeah. right right the endless the endless pit of desire yep. which is meant to be leading you to god mm. but you think that maybe if i keep scrolling or maybe this next thing will yep. satisfy me <laughs> all right so uh what does it mean precisely that you're a trappistine nun that has quite a ring to it, doesn't it? <laughs> it sure does. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, the, the official name of our order is the Cistercians of the Strict Observance, but we're commonly known as Trappists or Trappistines. Uh, Trappistine being the, the feminine, feminine form version. of Trappist, right? That's right, yeah. that's right. So the word Trappist comes from the Abbey of La Trappe in France, which was a Cistercian abbey that would then be the seed for a new resurgence of the order in the context of the French Revolution, when, as you, you may know, the, the orders were expelled mm -hmm. from France. And so the, the brothers from La Trappe became a nucleus for all kinds of fleeing religious from all over France. So they were living at La Valsant, which was an abandoned Carthusian monastery in Switzerland. And they just kept growing, and they were living the Trappist life and spirituality, but in a crisis mode, which kind of accentuated some of the particular characteristics, namely the asceticism. Uh, being in a crisis mode just pushed that really to mm. its limits and beyond. And so this group of people, which consisted in uh, monks and nuns, and also children who were on the run, um, mm. they traveled uh, to Eastern Europe and into Russia, 
looking for a safe place because everywhere they went, the armies were threatening to come mm. after them and would they be safe? Would they be accepted? Could they settle? Um, because in so many places at that time, contemplative life didn't have a place in society. It wasn't thought to be useful. It was thought to be damaging. Right. And so it would be replaced by some more useful form of apostolic life mm -hmm. or, or completely dismissed. So they all, all the way to Russia and then they came back uh, having not found refuge there. And finally, uh, they were able to settle in various parts of Europe and then um, they were able to send out parties to North America and elsewhere. Mm. And so that really seeded the the Trappist order. Um, and due to various disagreements into as to how the life should be lived based on how did the Cistercians live it, how did they live it at La Trappe, and how did we live it when we were in Russia, mm -hmm. which is the best way, you know, right. uh, inevitable disagreements and divisions. But the, the three orders came together with the encouragement of the Pope, um, Leo XIII, uh, towards the end of the 19th century. And so that was when we had the Cistercian order of the strict observance, Trappists, Trappistines, and then the order of Citeaux, which was the other branch. Hmm. And so that's uh, that has persisted to this day. And this is all based on your life is, is governed by the rule of St. Benedict. That's right? correct. Yes, correct. So St. Benedict would be the, uh, the monastic forebear, drawing upon the traditions of uh, the desert. And then um, in the 12th century was when um, the Cistercian order began. That was basically a reform of the Benedictine life at that time, where a, a group of monks, a group of 21 monks, left the Benedictine Abbey of Molem to start a new monastery in the woods because mm -hmm. they felt that they needed to live a life that was closely, more closely patterned on the rule of St. Benedict, specifically in regard to certain values, namely poverty and um, quiet, uh, not being quite so engaged with politics mm -hmm. and um, and also a balance between uh, the prayer of the divine office and manual work. Because what seemed to be happening at that time was the divine office had expanded and expanded to the extent that the monks did nothing else. And the work was done by serfs, basically. Mm. So they, they wanted what they saw as a more authentic monastic life with the balance between prayer and work for the monks themselves. Mm. Ora et labora is your motto, right? Yes, indeed. Do, do you look to St. Bernard as your main patron? Or is there a, a, is there a Trappist patron saint? Or Well, uh, so St. Benedict's first. Right. And then the Cistercian founders. Um, there's, the Cistercian founders are a group. There are 21 of them. And that's very significant because the Cistercian order, the value of community, of communion is very important to be a group. And there were three notable ones who have their own day as our founders. That would be uh, St. Robert, St. Albrecht, and St. Stephen. St. Bernard came later. Uh, many people think that he was the founder of the order, but no, he was just the first famous person right. in the order. Uh, so he entered maybe after 30 years and... Um, and with him, the order began its its great growth, really in numbers and in um, in influence. It, it seems as if the Cistercian spirituality really touched 
people at that time. It responded to a deep need in society at that time. And I think St. Bernard's eloquence and involvement uh, really, really brought that to a lot of people. Hmm. Now, and then, oh yes, sorry, you had another part to that question, which was about La Trappe. So La Trappe, um, the abbot of La Trappe, at its renewal, was uh, Abbot de Rancé. Um, this is another another historical story, which please go ahead. Um, so after the golden, the so-called golden years of the Cistercian life in the um, high Middle Ages, through various vicissitudes and wars and famines and political intrigues, uh, monastic life was in a difficult spot, partly because there was this tendency for abbeys to be run by people who just owned them and received the income mm -hmm. and not actually by people who had any spiritual interest in what was happening there. And so Abbot Durance was one of these noblemen who had um, inherited a bunch of monasteries at the age of eight or whatever it was. Mm. And But he went through a conversion and was inspired to live the monastic life. So what he did was he gave away most of those monasteries, but he kept one and he underwent formation and then took over as the real abbot, the abbot who was not only interested in the material side, but in the, in the well-being of the community and the mm. spiritual life. And so he really reformed that monastery and it was very important at that time in history. And, and later on, at the time of the French Revolution, it would be... Um, a very important element, as I already mentioned, mm. of of the survival of the of the revolution and a new um, a new flowering of monastic life. Oh, very interesting! Now, uh, Trappist got a little boost in uh, popularity about a decade or so ago with that movie. Did you ever see of Gods and Men? Yes, it was an mm. awesome movie, wasn't it? It is an excellent film, definitely. definitely. That final scene at the end is. One of my favorite movie scenes of, of all time, I think. Which one do you mean? Uh, when they're preparing for their martyrdom, basically. They're going around the table uh, sharing that uh, glass of wine and everything. Yes. So beautiful. I saw that in the seminary twice. <laughs> yes, it's very moving. And, it, and it's very real as well. I mean, what I've heard is that the family are totally satisfied with how they... With how oh, they well. well, not totally. I mean, they had, to, they had some artistic license, and, I yeah, guess. Yeah. But... Yeah. but substantially satisfied yeah. and as monks and nuns watching the movie you know we recognize right. the spirituality of the life right. so great so um saint bernard as you probably remembered is is prominently pictured at saint paul's too in our stained glass windows there did you ever make that uh connection i don't know if you were thinking in college specifically in in sort of cistercian terms yet but he is prominently there among the the doctors of the church in our stained glass windows i found that out later mm -hmm. yes i nice. do know of another member of our order a, a trappist monk who would pray in front of that window really? that he would be admitted to the order oh. uh, so a very special connection there but for me that that wasn't there as much i, I more right. found out about that later well, I'm starting my sixth year at St. Paul's now, and I just recently finally figured out the meaning of that Latin phrase that's in St. Bernard's window at St. Paul, misus est, which I should have just asked you, you would have known right away, but 
you know what that's in reference to? Oh, please tell me. me. <laughs> oh, you'll know. Misusesso is Latin for sent. So the angel was sent, you know, by God to, to Mary in reference to his uh, Advent sermons, right? He has Sounds a very right. wonderful sermon on the Annunciation. Yep. You've never seen... You've never seen it like that. All of heaven and earth waiting with bated breath for Mary to make her decision. Yep. And he's telling her, he's, he's telling her, everybody's waiting, no pressure, but everybody's waiting. <laughs> mm. I know that's featured once in the Office of Readings in our Liturgy of the Hours in Advent, but sounds like it's worth reading the whole thing. Definitely. So, what do you all do here to uh, support yourself? What's your work? Well, wait, um, I smell chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that is correct. Um, our, our main industry is a candy factory in which uh, we make Trappistine quality candy, which consists of chocolates and fudges and panucci. But our main. Oh, product, that's how you say it. I was always wondering how you pronounce panucci yes, okay panucci. good to know noted Thank new you. england specialty <laughs> yes um yes our main our main seller would be the butternut munch uh crunchy toffee coated in chocolate coated in hazelnuts mm. in all seriousness last time i was here it was during that really hot spell a few weeks ago and um you know, it was during the workday, so presumably the candy factory was up and running, and uh, I could smell the chocolate like blowing in the air from from the driveway. <laughs> it was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so, but Trappists uh, are known for uh, various food products that they produce, right? You have the Trappist monks in Central Mass; they make the jelly and the jams. That's and all right. That. That's right. So, yes. and you do the candy. So, yes. Well, we try to make our living by the labor of our hands. Mm -hmm. So. Well, to our audience, Mother Sophie is not paying me anything for this, but I will say the chocolate is amazing, and you should uh, definitely buy some. It is my uh, preferred gift if I'm going to someone's house for dinner, and uh, it never disappoints. Where, where could someone, or how might someone go about purchasing some? Well, uh, we have an online store at trappistinecandy.com. And then we also have a gift shop at the monastery, and our candy is sold in various gift shops around the country. So. Very nice. I might be making a stop there after this. And um, what about if someone were to be in the area for local folks here, um, they can visit your chapel for uh, mass or just quiet prayer during the day? Sure, yes. Our church is open every day from about 6 in the morning. Uh, Lord's is at 6.30. And then mass I won't be there for that. Okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> what time do you get up in the morning, by the way? Uh, we get up at 3 a.m. Nice. Our first office is the Office of Vigils at 3.20 and how so, long does that last? About 50 minutes. Okay. And 50, then, five, zero minutes. Yes, yeah. right. Um, that consists mostly in the recitation of the Psalms, as well as some readings from the Scriptures and from the Fathers. And then afterwards, we have a wonderful stretch of time for uh, private prayer and Lectio Divina, where it's, it's still dark and it's very quiet and it's most people's favorite time of day. Mm. Wonderful. Now, since, because I'm just imagining getting up at 3 a.m., I obviously I have to ask, when do you go to bed? 8 p.m. Okay. Yes. Sounds good. 
Um, okay, so the chapel's open starting at 6, and then folks can stop by any time. Right, um, yes. Mass is at 7.20, mm-hmm. and then the church is open all day for, for prayer mm-hmm. until about um, 7.30 after Compline. Great. So, any advice you'd give to folks, especially students, um, perhaps discerning a religious vocation or cultivating a, a spirit that um, is capable of hearing God's voice and His will for their lives? Well, I would just say, identify your desire and, and find a space to cultivate it. Uh, I mean, if you can feel yourself drawn to prayer, drawn to attending Mass more often, uh, drawn to reading spiritual books, I mean, just make time for it and let that desire grow and see where it leads you. I can guess what you'll answer, but I'll ask anyway. Um, any particular writings you'd recommend for inspiration besides sacred scripture? Well, I'd have to think about that for a minute. <laughs> Well, my guess was St. Bernard, but... Well, of uh, course, but uh, he wouldn't have been my first choice, necessarily. Um, it shouldn't be that hard of a question. <laughs> I'm just trying to think, what would I actually recommend? Well, St. Bernard writes beautifully. He's not always the most accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, among the Cistercian Fathers, there's also uh, Blessed Garrick of Ini. He has a series of sermons on the lit- liturgical seasons, mm. liturgical feasts. Yep. So that... Um, that gives you a little more context and a little more right. uh, focus to understand what he has to say to you. And there are also the, the women's Cistercians who are very interesting. I mean, St. Gertrude the Great, um, she has some beautiful writings, some of which written by her own hand right. um, on her own experience of God through the liturgy in particular and the scriptures, mm. how that has has nourished her. Um, but my my personal favorite is the cloud of unknowing. Nice. Uh, again, perhaps not necessarily the most accessible, but um, and that's by that's by an unknown author. Oh, okay. Of the 14th century nice. English. Mm-hmm. Uh, depending on the translation you read, but the translation that is my favorite from from the 1960s is just delightfully. Um, endearing the way the way you address God, the way you speak about God, it it just is so attractive and um, uncomplicated. And I've noticed that you post some of your chapter or community talks here on your monastery website. So. Yes. I would highly recommend those to any anybody that's curious um, to see some of Mother Sophia's own writing. So there, are, there are some Lexio Divina posts on the page there, which mm-hmm. are usually based more or less on the scripture for the Sunday, um, and then there are also some chapter talks related to a specific celebration of a profession, maybe or a jubilee for a sister. So mm-hmm. a bit of variety there. Great. Well, last question, just to go back to where I started with the title of the episode, um, referring to the the monastery as the sort of heartbeat of the church. Could you unpack that a little bit? Like, what is just the point, in a sense, of this of this vocation uh, in in terms of the whole body of Christ? Well, it's a vocation to 
give oneself to God first. But that giving of oneself and that becoming oneself um, is at the service of the mission, which is the church and the world, and, and having everybody come to know God and themselves. Uh, some people who are drawn to the monastery are drawn by the the chaos in the world and the suffering and the desire to give something, give all of themselves for that, to pray mm. for that. Some people are drawn um, in, in quite a different way. They're drawn because they've they've succeeded in everything they ever tried and yet it was empty for them. And suddenly they realized that it was only God who could satisfy them. Uh, others might be drawn by um, the beauty of the liturgy, uh, the sense of communion in community uh, with all its difficulties and challenges, but living together as a witness to the kingdom of God. All of these aspects are there. Mm. Um, and they, um, you know, one, one sister might be living more in one aspect than another, but they all, they all come together. I mean, it's a life for God and for the world. And you spend much of the day, uh, in addition to the work, uh, praying, praying the Psalms in particular, offering those praises to God. That's it, yes. Yes, the divine office dominates dominates the daily Mm -hmm. schedule. And and it feeds us. I mean, the Psalms in particular, the liturgy in general, the scriptures, it it feeds us in, um, in knowing what God has in mind for all of us for the world mm. his his salvific plan is just there every day and hearing that more deeply believing that more deeply and coming to know ourselves and, and being brave enough really to face ourselves i think the psalms are a great um exercise in that because the psalms can be so nasty and difficult i mean there are some very beautiful and gentle ones and there are some some very hard ones and i think what you have to come to terms with is oh, the, the cursing psalms. Right, yeah. that, that we have that within us. Mm. Uh, I mean, not just in the world in general, but yeah. in here. And to come yeah. to terms with that before God, uh, so that it's not just our nice selves that are given to God, but That's our right. whole self. Well, from the front lines or the the active life, thank you for your vocation. And because uh, I know so much of what you do, it, it just feeds life into the active apostolate of other active religious uh, priests and just the, the whole life of the church that really is uh, counting on your life and, and prayers to keep us all sane and going here. <laughs> well, Here we are again from the heart of the church of Mount St. Mary's Abbey in Rentham, Massachusetts, to you. Thanks again so much for being here, for for allowing me to come here to share this conversation with you and share just a little hint of your beautiful life here with the world um, and especially with the Harvard community. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Harvard Catholic. Don't forget to follow us or subscribe to stay on top of all the latest episodes. And please consider supporting us by visiting harvardcatholic.org. We hope you'll join us next time as we continue proclaiming the truth and love of Jesus Christ to Harvard and to the world.